Now, recently, an investigative report on the sinking of the Oyang 70, a South Korean trawler. Uh, back in 2010, this happened, uh, but it was published more recently in The Guardian, and the writing is an edited extract from a new book by Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter Ian Urbina. And today we have a chance to hear directly from him about this world of bandits, trawlers, pirates, enslaved crews, brutality and neglect on the high seas. Mr Urbina, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And just to clarify, if anyone wants to check out this book, it's called The Outlaw Ocean, Crime and Survival in the Last Untamed Frontier. What drew your attention to this frontier? I'd always been interested in the ocean. And then when I was an anthropologist, I spent some time working on a ship in Singapore. And that sort of introduced me to the 50 million people you know, that work out there and sort of fascinating diaspora tribe that they represent. The... Um article that you wrote, it really paints an awful picture of Sajo Oyang, which may not be particularly familiar to us. It's been a huge presence, though, hasn't it, in distant water fishing? Um, if we think about canned tuna on our shelves here, we're probably more familiar just with the name Sajo. Yeah, it's a big player and um, has been for several decades and is involved not just in fishing, but also in other types of foodstuffs. Um, and I was especially interested in that company and its fleet in New Zealand waters and that fleet of trawlers specifically that were fishing for a white form of cod that they usually ground up and made into fish meal that they feed to salmon and pigs and chickens. I was interested in, in the ships that were in New Zealand's waters because there had been several calamities with multiple ships from this one company. The sinking that I referred to before of the Oyang 70 is a 38-year-old vessel at the time of the sinking, the calm conditions off the coast of New Zealand. Can you briefly walk us through what exactly happened? I mean, this, in this case, this is a, a rear door trawler, and the net that they use is a sort of obelisk-shaped net that can pull in a lot of fish. And on this day, they pulled in too much fish in the net. The captain was begged by the crew to cut it loose and to open it up to let some of the fish out uh, because it was making the ship unstable. Uh, as you mentioned, this is a ship that was relatively old before it had been allowed to fish in these waters. It had been inspected by New Zealand authorities and sort of deemed to be risky. Uh, tender is the term they use for an unstable ship. So it was not in great condition uh, the captain was very eager. This is a type of fishing where the margins are tight and um, it's hard to make money in it. This was a big catch and a big opportunity. And for whatever reason, the captain did not want to cut loose the net or thin it out. And in pulling the net on board, the ship was taking on more and more water. Uh, and eventually the net slipped to one side. The ship listed the 15-degree angle list, took on more water, and eventually um, it, it sank. And there was very little preparation on board for evacuation policies. The men didn't have suits, survival suits. The waters were frigid. They kept working till the very end and decided to abandon on their own. The captain and five other men went down with the ship and died. Awful to even hear of those details. But for many of these crew members, this would have been the only way out. They would have been effectively enslaved by debt bondage, uh, which is one of the common ways of entrapping people in slavery today. And many of the crew members were from 
for example, central Java in Indonesia. Can you tell us a bit more about this intricate system and this, this vicious cycle that makes it very bleak for these people who get on board these ships? So fishing globally is the most dangerous profession. Um, statistically, um, it's, a, it's a brutal profession, a brutal type of work, um, very low-paid work, uh, and obviously very dangerous. And for all those reasons, it's not one that uh, is easy to find workers. There are these companies called manning agencies, which are international companies, and, and they handle to a large degree the, the recruitment of workers for these kinds of jobs, those deckhands on uh, distant water fishing vessels. Um, those jobs are, again, very low paid, you know, usually 18 to 20 hour days, six, seven days a week. Um, there are contracts sometimes. The contracts often have the recruitment of these workers from small villages in India, Indonesia, West Africa, uh, elsewhere, uh, and the Philippines is a big recruiting zone. These workers typically have to put a fair amount of money up front to get the job. So they don't have much, usually don't have much money on their own. So they borrow from relatives and sell off their moped or their ox or, you know, what, you know, by hook or crook, you know, try to take a, a grab at what looks like a really promising opportunity, and sometimes indeed it is, uh, but often it's not. And they um, go into debt to get the job. They pay the manning agency. Um, they pay for their flight. They fly to some other country. They get on board the ship. They usually work three, six, nine-month tours, and there are significant deductions of their wages for food, for transport, for this, that, and the other thing. So what already is pretty slave wages is, even worse than that when they uh, finally get off. Sometimes even worse still, these manning agencies don't even wire the money home as they promised they would do. But the debt structure that, that exists whereby these guys are um, in the hole before they even get on board is one that is uh, really problematic and sort of akin to uh, old South slavery. When you're in that situation and you suffer sexual assault or dehumanizing working conditions, violence, presumably you haven't got much of a voice to uh, complain. Again, this is by no means the case on all vessels. It's certainly less true for those who work on merchant marine vessels carrying cargo, though there are problems there too. It's not even true on all fishing vessels, but there's a pretty robust cross-section of these types of fishing vessels where it's par for the course for pretty intense violence to occur on the vessels. Like I said, debt bondage, pretty awful living conditions, even contractual terms that obligate them to stay on board, and if they leave, uh, they're further in debt um, to the employer. And very often in, in many fleets around the world, so on the South China Sea, on the, in the Thai fishing fleet, for example, a lot of these workers are not just all those things. They're also migrants who are undocumented. So they're invisible in the sense that, from law enforcement, in the sense that they're beyond the horizon and they're out in a space, sometimes the high seas where there are no police. So what, what you know, good is law with no enforcement? But then they're also secondarily invisible in the sense that they're undocumented and their passport's been taken away. So um, it's a very, very vulnerable population, to say the least. Does um, Sajo Oyang really stand out, though? You, you said it's not all fishing vessels, for example, but um, how much infamy does this particular company deserve? I think a significant amount. I mean, I have not... Um, uh, I, 
I focused on them because I wanted to find a ship initially, just an individual ship, and use that ship as a as a protagonist rather than a person, and sort of illustrate what bad systemic scofflaw, repeat bad behavior looks like. And I looked at a bunch of different companies, a bunch of different ships, and I, I settled on the Ouyang fleet of ships um, because there were such a variety of different um, criminality, you know, going on in, in these vessels. So to, to sort of accelerate through the Ouyang stories that are in the book, the Ouyang 70 had a very avoidable, fatal accident where men died, um, and the investigators from New Zealand who looked at this case definitively came down uh, on the side that this was um, largely the fault of the captain and the company for negligence. Subsequent to that, you had a second ship that was sent to replace the Ouyang 70. This was the Ouyang 75. A couple months in, in New Zealand waters fishing the, guy, the ship ports, and the guys come off and begin to complain to authorities of rape and beatings and you know just awful conditions on the boat. And the New Zealand government uh, gets very upset, begins looking into these ships in its waters. Lo and behold, a third ship, the Ouyang 77, is discovered to have been involved in uh, a variety of environmental crimes, including catching lots of fish and then dumping them overboard when better fish were caught. Uh, very illegal and, and wasteful and um, problematic. Um, so there's your third ship. And then you have this other very sort of eerily parallel case of a fourth ship, the Oriang 501, in Russian waters, not New Zealand waters, but that much like the Oyang 70 had, by most investigation, you know, um, uh, v- very avoidable and fatal um, sinking where men died again. So to me, the sum total of, these, of this behavior convinced me that it was worth highlighting them. Um, I will update the story to say that I stayed sort of vigilantly watching these ships. And only a month ago, the Ouyang 75 was arrested again in Argentina, Chile, uh, for um, illegal fishing allegations. They haven't been prosecuted yet, but they were detained on these charges. I, I do think there is a, um, a pattern here that made it fair to highlight this company and this fleet. For all of us as consumers, and we do live in a democracy here, hopefully you would think that if a country is able to clamp down on this kind of practice, it would be a country like South Korea. But uh, for us as consumers, we might be tempted to carefully choose our sources of seafood. What would your advice be when we're trying to find out more about the producers of what we're eating? It's hard to do. It's a worthy goal, though. There are some players out there that rank types of fish more so than companies, um, Monterey Bay Aquarium is one worth Googling, and it it very sort of carefully for a long time has been putting out a report card on um, types of fish that are more prone to environmental concerns than others. And in the last two years, they've also begun to look at the human, you know, sort of the crimes above the waterline, not just below the waterline, and so those affecting humans, not just fish, and trying to adjust their ranking system to take that into account. But this supply chain, you know, the supply chain that is seafood, is unlike, you know, that that gives us our iPhones or tennis shoes or soccer balls, you know, because it's occurring out in this other world, you know, beyond the horizon, and and it's very hard to document what's happening out there, and then it's very hard to trace the products that come from that space all the way back to the can on your, you know, grocery store shelf. But it's happening. You know, there, there are companies that are 
you know, really leaning into um, this effort to sort of um, clean up their supply chain. Well, it may be a dull silver lining, but if there's anything positive, it's that shame is a positive instigator for change, and, and, and we all need a dose of that now. Ian Obina, investigative reporter, author of The Outlaw Ocean, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.